Gemma, and this is Money Can't Buy You Class, a podcast about reality television through a critical lens, just checking if my mic was on. And today we have a very special guest on the show. Um, He does have social media, but he also has something much greater than social media. He has a book. Um, So today's guest is Tom Syverson, author of Reality Squared on reality TV and left politics, published by Zero Book. So welcome, Tom. Thanks for coming on the pod. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. You guys have a great show. Uh, So looking forward to discussing all the various shows you guys are watching and maybe a bit about the book as well. Yeah, our our good friend, uh, shout out to I Am A Genius Pod, recommended the book and um, she was very apt in that recommendation. It was, uh, I was, we were saying before we hopped on that it was a great read, a very accessible text in terms of theory, um, which, you know, is sort of trendy at the moment in terms of reality TV, which I think we can chat about a little bit actually. but yeah, it was a really great read. And uh, Tom, you talk a lot about, um, you kind of frame the book as a kind of text against the the all too familiar critics of reality TV, that reality TV is simply trash, that it's staged, that there's something wrong with it being staged or that that's the critique. And um, I really liked your framing of that because I felt like it was a very concise thesis that also, um, you know, it's a little cheeky. It kind of, you know, just points directly at like the, the kind of first thing people say are when you tell them you wrote a book about reality TV, you know, that's the first thing they're going to say. So I, I liked that framing of it. Yeah. Yeah. All those reasons you mentioned are a big reason why I wrote the book. Cause I was kind of almost sick of hearing all of those cliches every time I, you know, brought it up and for, you know, for several years, uh, you know, before I was, before I started writing the book, it was just kind of one of my central preoccupations. Like I had been kind of like, into film and film theory and stuff like that. But then I got really into reality TV and um, every, every single time it comes up in conversation with someone who's not like a real hardcore fan, it's, you know, oh, how can you watch that? Oh, it's so staged, oh, how shallow. And I just, I really genuinely just didn't feel that way. Like I felt that just as a, as a fan, um, I was getting like so much out of it, like much more than I was getting out of uh, fiction television also most novels that, that I was encountering. Um, and so one of the just questions I had when I started writing it is like, why is that? Why does this feel so energetic and um, so fresh to me and to others right now? So that was part of the beginning investigation I, I had when, when I started writing it. Yeah, for sure. I So what show did you start with? It's actually interesting because I feel like sometimes and like maybe you're the exception that Maybe you're the exception or the exception that proves the rule, but usually it's on a very gender line. Like I grew up being obsessed with reality television, partly because it kind of like taught me socially how to be a woman, 
even if I like didn't know that at the time, but like even like America's Next Top Model, like The Hills, um, really, I was like, oh, like this is how a woman should act in these social situations. But I feel like with a lot of uh, like like men, even you kind of come to it from a theoretical standpoint. So I'm I'm wondering like what came first for you, like the interest in it critically, or just like you grew up watching it, you loved it, you're obsessed with it, and then the book came because you were like fuck all these people. I want to like investigate. Yeah, I guess it's a little bit of both because I I do agree that it still does remain um, quite gendered in terms of people who watch it, people who think about it and um, or at least kind of like publicly. So I think there are a lot of closet Bravo fans out there like who are, <laughs> who it's because of their, you know, relationships or marriages. They end up watching a lot of it and liking it a whole lot. So I think it's beginning to change a little bit, but um, really... I, I really came at this as a fan. Um, mm. Going back, my first true passion for reality television was back when I was in college. Uh, Rock of Love was on uh, on at that oh time. Oh my god! Have you guys have you guys watched that or are you familiar with I it? I have seen clips. I had a friend who was like really into it, and I <laughs> yeah. and I kind of know the gist. But yeah, I would love to hear your your. Oh thoughts. yeah, I mean it is an outrageous show. I mean it was. <laughs> It was so fun to watch back then, back um, at that kind of time in social history. It um, was very, uh, very fun. I watched it with like uh, you know people I lived with and stuff like that. Um, but I recently revisited it. Like last year, I went back and watched all three seasons and it's just unbelievable. Like the, the crassness, like the chauvinism, it's just really a bubble in time that um, it couldn't be on TV anymore at all. But luckily right. it's like, all on Hulu. So I was able to revisit it. Um, Not on uh, TV, but on Hulu. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's in the art. It is in the, the public archives, but a show like this um, never, you know, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't stand a chance these right, days. Right, right. Um, but I, I love that show. We got like way into it. There's also the, um, the spinoff Daisy of Love and they even, there were some early examples of like fantasy sports type like apps on the internet that were just coming out. I'd never even played fantasy football before, but we did attempt to play fantasy Daisy of love. Um, <gasps> and like, wow. Uh, and a lot of my, you know, both male and female friends, we were all really into it at that time. Um, so that was kind of my first real, like really like en energetic engagement with it. And I was, um, I was studying political theory and stuff at the time, but I really didn't, I really didn't join them together at all. I just, uh, I just loved it for its entertainment value. Um, then I think a huge game changer for me and probably a lot of people uh, was Jersey Shore, which right. came, came out uh, right after I got out of college. And um, I also uh, grew up in New Jersey, including many trips to Seaside Heights. So um, I have all sorts of uh, fondness for that, um, that, uh, area of the world. Um, but, uh, but I also think it just upped the game in so many ways in terms of its casting and how, how strong a cast it was. I mean, it's still on, I mean, not, right. not even a lot of people know this, but it's still on in various forms. Um, and I have, uh, checked in from time to time, uh, and continued to watch it. Not, not as much as I used to. Um, so that was, I think, phase two. It was a very exciting cultural moment when, when uh, when Jersey Shore came out, but then the the big addiction finally happened when I finally became a real Bravo fan. 
Um, it wasn't really until then that I had found really like the good stuff, like the real like heroin or crack that, that I could not put down. Um, and I just fell into it completely. It was, it was around, um, I think maybe 2015. Um, I was uh, recently out of law school. I was very miserable with uh, what I was kind of doing with my life. And I was looking for, you know, as many, you know, distractions as possible. And uh, season three of Vanderpump Rules was on at that time. Ooh. And I got- yeah, the in many points, you know, season. arguably, yeah, the, the high point of the whole show. And so I was like, whoa, yeah. like I watched that season. Then I went back to the beginning, watched all of it. And then since it was a spinoff of Beverly Hills, I went and watched like all of right. Beverly Hills and um, Beverly Hills remains kind of really some of my all time favorite. I think kind of almost the pinnacle of uh, of the genre occurred um, uh, in those first three seasons, probably. Uh, but then... I just went, I went through almost all of it. I've, I've watched um, up until the most recent season, every episode of New York, almost every episode of Orange County, although I stopped watching it in recent years. Um, uh, New Jersey, of course, I'm a huge, huge fan. Yeah, of, we, uh, we've been, we've been, uh, we're like recent, recent bingers. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. awesome. I mean, I think it's I think it's so interesting. I love hearing people talk about like their like, you know, path, because I think there's all this interesting um, stuff with like time that gets confused where like, you know, this like those early seasons of like Rock of Love or something or Jersey Shore. You know, I remember that era so well. And, and those feel like such like, you know, encapsulations, like you're saying of this moment that like really like came and went. But, you know, they have these like footholds in these future shows that have come out, you know, these new shows that come out like in terms of like and like those what the precursor to that was like Big Brother. Right. And so and also like the Vanderpump to the Beverly Hills, like, you know, there's all these lateral kind of moves. And um, I really I find that and, and we've recently been kind of dedicating ourselves to like I mean, my goal is to watch like try to watch every single housewives franchise <laughs> yeah i i think that is an awesome goal i yeah. i haven't reached that yet but um it's gonna take it's yeah. gonna take years of my life <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah unbelievable amount of time but it's rewarding stuff i mean it's, it really weirdly it is. Really yeah. is yeah yeah and and i love also the um kind of like you said you guys have been going back and like like watching uh, old, old stuff from New Jersey. I think that's really important for people who are into the genre is to remember that by now it's a genre with lots of rich history and going yeah. back and watching old seasons um, is really, really interesting. I almost like doing that more um, because some of the, in, in addition to being kind of transported back to a different like point in time, um, watching it all together, I, of course, you know, uh, don't love that term or concept of binging, but watching it all together actually helps the narrative feel a little bit kind of more coherent. Mm -hmm. um, and I can kind of really see kind of the shape of what, whatever the drama was during that season. Whereas week to week, it can be a little bit um, more uh, subtle or, or difficult to piece together sometimes. And you're always looking for like those real blockbuster, you know, fights and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, so anyway, I really agree. It's a, it's a genre that you can do all these, you know, deep investigations of in a very, stimulating way yes no I I love that um right and it's it's so weird because I started watching like the only way that I knew how to watch was all at once 
Mm-hmm. Um, so now that I've kind of caught up with a with a few shows, it's very difficult for me to watch week by week. And I feel like I also learn a lot about the structure of the show. First is that it's like, it's mostly mundane, which is something that you talk about in your book. So it's actually kind of boring to watch um, week by week because nothing really happens in each episode. Um, the reason that you keep watching is for the promise of drama and coming up next week to be continued. And also there's this very interesting uh, thing when you watch a week to week is that every episode seems to end in the middle of something. It's like this very strange type of like aware of itself metaphor of like the cliffhanger. You know what I mean? It's just like they stop literally like in the middle of someone's sentence. But I also, so, so I, I totally see that. Like it's a very different experience um, quote unquote binging and not doing that. But so why don't you like the word binging because of like the, the, the eating disorder oh, connotation? Uh, <laughs> no, not necessarily. Although that's also not, not the most pleasant um, connotation. It's just one of those terms that is like really um, uh, it's thrown around so much and it's, it's a negative term also is like right. um, there's a lot of different ways I could describe this is I always call it like my like research or like, you know, I'm, I'm doing deep research here. I need to watch all, you know, 25 episodes. Um, whereas, you know, a binge, there's just like the negative connotations to it where it's kind of like, you know, you're overdoing it or you're devaluing it or something. So um, another thing like that I wanted to do, I, I don't know if it was totally successful in the book, but to like remove some of these kind of like, uh, like apologies that always have to preface uh, discussions of reality television. I mean, I, I do it myself as well, because that's just like the, that's just the way it goes when discussing it with the wider world. Um, but to like not refer to it as a guilty pleasure, like mm-hmm. it's just a pleasure. It's just like a, it's a fantastic um, narrative form that, that we have today. And there's just, I, there's, should be nothing guilty about it and, and all of that. So maybe that's what, what I was, um, that's what Fran Leibowitz says. Oh, oh, what that, like, there are no guilty pleasures. Yeah. Or just something? pleasures. She would like, why would you be guilty if it's a pleasure? <laughs> it's just a pleasure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, could, could not agree more. Anyway, whatever. But, but I think that binging is also like, it's a very feminine word, especially yeah. because of like the eating disorder connotations. You know what I mean? Like when I was watching like America's Next Top Model, I was also reading like 17 magazine, which is like five ways to see if your friend is like anorexic, you know, and right. like, and what to do. It, and it's, you know what I mean? Like it's, right. it's obviously like a metaphor for, for a type of like, um, like monster like consumption mm-hmm. but right as Gemma you're saying like the 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 networks are the creator of the monster and also the creator of the content yeah and so, the culture around it in some way right you know yeah we were just talking about how bachelor nation is like an authoritarian state <laughs> <laughs> and like all the podcasts are like Russia today yeah. <laughs> MSNBC <laughs> yeah they're kind of enough an authoritarian fan base as well exactly notorious for for that but okay so I think I'd love I mean I would love to talk about the book and I know that like it's not going to be like a word for word like what did you mean by this sentence but I think that's something I really loved about your book was your uh was your deep reading of of the hills um which is a show that we actually haven't talked about here. And I always say that I started watching reality TV with the Kardashians, but I remember I actually started with the Hills and I remember 
binging it as like a teenager my family were like traveling in like Austria and like we had I had like the worst jet lag ever so I would stay up all night on like these weird illegal sites on like these random Austrian computers watching the hills um anyway but that's you know neither here nor there but I think that's you have a line in the book that's like the hills is probably like the first obviously postmodern reality television show because it plays with the notion of like what's real and what's unreal and then you have this kind of incredible um reading of the hills through Baudrillard and Baudrillard on the Gulf War and the Gulf War didn't actually happen um or like did the Gulf War actually happen and there there are a lot of I mean there are a lot of ways to go so I could you could answer this in like a general way but I think one way that I want to approach this is being like a lot of people, like big Instagram accounts or just like your random 20-something-year-old woman making a meme on Instagram or whatever, go to Baudrillard as like this immediate um, like Fort Daw reaction to like, oh my God, the hyper real. Oh my God, it's fake. But I think that you act like something I really respect about your book is that you really take the time to to argue that 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 what Baudrillard understands is the hyper real or what he names as the hyper real is not the opposite of of the real it it's actually a third type of reality because you have what happened what didn't happen and then kind of like the concoction of what happened so so i guess i kind of like if you want i would love to hear you talk a little bit about like the creation of of the hills in, in terms of the postmodern or what what you mean by it being like the first postmodern show and then kind of like how you were able to use baudrillard in in a in an accessible way but also in a way that doesn't just say oh like reality television equals baudrillard because it's all hyper real and fake so just uh, if you could expand on that, and maybe was that question too crazy? But no, it was great. It was an, an, an incredible question. I, I really appreciate it. Um, so to start with, maybe maybe starting with the hills, I I think that it is such an interesting show um, in the history of reality television because on the one hand, it happened you know kind of earlier in the history, you know during like the mid two thousands. It's not like um, it's not part of like the new wave. Um, of kind of the, you know, like the, all the Bravo stuff I associate with being a little more recent. Um, It's an older show, but they went the furthest with pushing this like radical artifice Mm -hmm. and just kind of going full on where they're going to like shoot reality and shoot real people's lives, but make it look and feel exactly like a fiction show. Um, I, I think it is really incredible what they were able to put together um how how beautiful it looks how like really well edited it is um and i this this was uh confirmed when i've been revisiting some of the seasons but like it's a really like fast-paced and plot-driven show like it's not like other reality shows where there's all of this open kind of like hanging out and um like you mentioned uh, that a lot of it is kind of mundane and you're just kind of like following people around it's like it's got a plot and it is like really sticking to it and the way that they're able to um pull all of that through it is really impressive uh formally and uh i I hope this isn't like a big spoiler for any of your uh listeners that they haven't watched it yet but the the ending of the show is so um incredibly daring and and interesting that you have 
Brody Jenner staring off into the distance. Um, and it's supposed to be this kind of real, you know, wistful, emotional climax. Um, but then, and you see the Hollywood sign behind it, but then they roll away the, the set behind him and they zoom back. Um, and it in fact reminds me right. of the ending of um, the, this big experimental uh, film I love from the seventies, The Holy Mountain. It's the exact same ending. Um, and, and so I thought it was just so interesting because it's also, um, it's been, it's been a show that has been uh, also denigrated or dismissed for all sorts of reasons because of how open many of the cast members were about the, the stagedness or stuff like that. Um, I mean, really for, forthcoming and just like really audacious um, kind of like pseudo real um, performances where in like one of the later seasons when Heidi and Spencer are like living in a house, like it's not even their house. Like it's someone's totally other house. So they're even now like doing sets and stuff like that. But nonetheless, it, it comes through as something that feels quite a bit different than an actual fiction show. Um, and so I, I wanted to try to uh, look at Baudrillard with this stuff as kind of the, as kind of the culmination of what the book tries to do mm. in exploring his work. One thing that I'll totally admit to is before I started writing it, I didn't really know that much about Baudrillard. Like I had been kind of a psychoanalysis guy for the most part, but I'd always, you know, seen this stuff about his concept of simulation. And like you said, people who like to post about reality TV and theory, um, you know, it's a name you really see a lot, but I never really understood it. So I had to kind of start from scratch and work through it as I went through the chapters. Um, and then kind of his most like notorious or yeah. kind of difficult to understand or misunderstood text of um, uh, the Gulf War did not take place. Uh, I was like, you know, well, did the hills take place? When, what does that mean to say that something took place or not when it's so mediated through cameras and on this enormous kind of inhuman scale and stuff like that. So um, I, and, and, and I tried to get it at, at that, at, at some of what, um, what you were mentioning about that. It's like this hard dichotomy between fake and real that is generally taken for granted by most people. Right, exa um, exactly. The, the concept of the hyper real is kind of just to say that like, that's not the hard dichotomy that it's typically viewed as that there's, yeah, 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 exactly. And so when people say these cliches, like, oh, the, the Hills was fake or reality TV is staged. I just kind of wanted to say like, well, let's think about what we're saying there and right. whether it matters and what other, if that was staged, then, then aren't these aspects of our lives staged or these aspects of our political system? Um, and what Baudrillard was saying was because of the way that the Iraq war, the first Gulf war was um, covered that it was just entering this kind of new, new space of where um, it becomes a very non-obvious, uh, the, the answer is very non-obvious as to what, whether and how we can say that events took place. And, oh, and I guess maybe the, the last part I'll just uh, bring in about that chapter on the hills and I also explore some of this in the chapter on The Bachelor. I was very interested to know where the concepts of love and desire come into this because those are also like wishy-washy concepts that um, people, and this is you know, some of my um, 
interest in psychoanalysis that people take for granted that they're very aware of their desires and what it means to love something and all of that. And um, from a psychoanalytic perspective, it would be very much the opposite claim that, um, that uh, we're not aware of those things or really so in control of them. So uh, part of what I wanted to explore on in that chapter on the hills was most of the storylines are about r romance and about whether people are together, whether they're seeing each other. And so that's already a problematic and ambiguous concept of like, are we a couple? Like, you know, are we in love with each other? Um, and then if you overlay all of this stuff about producer manipulations and right. all this back and forth, then you're really kind of not in Kansas anymore when it comes to saying um, what the actuality of the matter is. <laughs> so um, that's some of the stuff I, I tried to explore in that chapter. Um, hopefully that begins to answer the question because the, the question was, it's a big, it's a big one for sure. No, it was definitely a big one just, and it was, it was mostly in praise of you. Um, but I, I mean, so, so, so I, I, I rewatched season four of the Hills and the last episode to prepare for this. And there, I guess there were two things that I noticed. And the first was, um, you know, obviously the the last episode of the hills is like the holy mountain but it's also like the beginning of robert altman's the player where have you seen that do you, do you know the player i actually haven't seen it i've like heard about it and it's been on the on the old watch list for a while but no i haven't seen it i mean it's just crazy it's like the the first scene like the first shot you see the whole camera and you hear everyone calling cut which is kind of like and it's about like a television or uh, a movie producer so just kind of like the the movie's fake, it's a fantasy, but that's neither here nor there. But I, I think something else is just like, even in the diction of like, Gulf War did not take place or like Hills did not take place, did it take place? I hear so much of a, of a realness or of a transaction in, in the word mm -hmm. take place. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, I think that, and that, and that is also like, I hear like a, so much like concreteness or a, a desire for the concrete in, 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 in almost like this, this hopeful, this very romantic question that it take place. What are we allowed to hold from this? Like, what are we allowed to, to have in this strange concept of, of reality? Like it, it's almost, to me, it almost seems like a question of, of like, how, how can we, we make something real and not real just in terms of like real emotion, whatever that means, but how can we make something in, into like a thing itself? And I think that that to me is also like that that's definitely a tension that you point to in, in your book when you're talking about the kind of initiatory drama of season four, where Lauren is dating this guy, Doug, obviously does not like him, goes nowhere. Like, I don't even right. think they kiss or like, I don't think they even have sex. But then Stephanie Pratt starts, goes on like two dates with Doug. And all of a sudden it explodes. Because I think that there's this desire on behalf of the producers, mm -hmm. the audience, and then even probably the people who are making the show to make something which you, which is not tangible, tangible, right? They want it to happen because they want this, especially Brody wants a reason to, to hate Stephanie. You, you know what I mean? And I think that like that, just like watching the Hills through this lens is like, it's, it's extremely illuminating. Yeah. That is really, really interesting. Um, I agree that it does have some, Thing to do with our 
kind of desire or our that we're we're not satisfied until something is kind of concrete and that we've been able to put it in one or the other category that either this did take place, we did date, we did, you know, have a thing, um, or we didn't. It just was, you know, um, a figment of one person's imagination or a misunderstanding, and then it can go in like the fictional category. And so I think I think you're right that that probably was a big part of kind of the um, the really that really disorienting storyline of all of that back and forth um, <laughs> that they have and that I try to document um, in that in that chapter. Uh, but it, it goes to kind of some of the the broader kind of um, themes or the, the broader question that I was trying to ask, like as I kind of introduced like the, the book and, and, and attempt to conclude it, but it was kind of like saying like, you know, we, we take for granted that there's this very um, mm -hmm. objective concrete reality and there are, there are, you know, there are facts and there are lies. And that became a, also just a, a really big way that the Trump era was structured by a lot of people was that it was just this, uh, this good versus evil fight between like facts and not facts. And um, certainly the politics of the pandemic took that form as well. Um, but the uncomfortable fact is that it's like, there's mm -hmm. certain criteria or there's certain reasons for why we as a whole basically decide something as part of social reality or why we exclude it from, from social reality. Um, and so that I think is a, a valuable lesson uh, politically or, or, or sociologically. And it's something that I didn't, you know, probably fully understand or appreciate until I really started thinking about um, this question of the, this, you know, bland, but very important question is like, is reality TV real? And what do we mean when we say it's either real or not real? Because it existed physically in reality. Like these people did these things um, in front of a camera but uh, none, nonetheless, we're left with this like hanging question of whether it counts as as real. I really liked your framing of it through the, the you know the Trump presidency and like the politics around the Trump presidency because my experience in like terms of like political language was that like words and with the pandemic especially there's all these kind of words that have sort of lost their meaning or tether to reality and, and simply serve for the function of a certain kind of phrase or to to signify that you're part of some some camp and i i even think about like the you know the vote imperative you know really starting to lose it's like when you repeat a word over and over in your mouth it starts to not sound like the word it's like i think and i think that to me really like feels connected to this reality tv idea of like real and fake and trying to prove what's real and fake and, and also like the slippery spot between it that becomes a much more true lived reality. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's that's kind of the difficulty. And that was part of the anxiety of uh, the book or the argument that I was trying to make was that once you, um, once you kind of take this step and you realize that like nothing is really totally grounded at the end of the day, that it's always built on some, um, you know, interactions of uh, power or e economics or long sociocultural traditions. Um, if it's all on that kind of like intangible base, then nothing is really tethered anymore. And it just becomes this uh, hard discourse of power um, and knowledge and stuff like that. And I'm not, um, 
I'm not super well versed in, in Foucault and all of that, but um, I mean, I think he had a point about that. And I think it really has stood the, stood the test of time um, uh, to, to understand um, how interrelated the, those things are. But the, but the trick is, you know, to not like go too far down that road, to still try to maintain some um, connection to what we want to call reality or scientific truth or something. Um, so that's, that's the rub. I mean, I'm not, not totally sure how to balance all of that, but I, I think that is kind of like the, the challenge of, of today's uh, politics and culture is like how to, how to balance those or how to channel it in a way that's like productive for society and not just this like degenerate, like nihilism of, oh, well, you know, nothing, nothing matters at all. I, I, I tried to be optimistic on that note when I, when I finished writing that book. Um, uh, I don't know if I would have, so it's tough, but uh, the, these are the sorts of questions you can arrive at, you know, from taking reality TV seriously. Um, not that you need to. Again, I really, um, this is how I happen to engage with uh, culture that, that I'm experiencing, um, that I like, uh, want to investigate it from this angle. But um, uh, it also, you know, it doesn't, it does by no means has to be, um, I guess, which is proven by the amount of, you know, people who just watch it for fun and and all of that. Yeah. And I know, like, I feel like in a way for me, it's like even hard to, to not watch it critically at a certain point. And I think that that's even just like something bad, like it's a character flaw in myself. Um, because like, even though I, I began watching it as a way to like turn my brain off or as a way to just kind of like calm down and relax, like I was just kind of like drawn to what it meant in terms of like what it was producing. And I, I blame that on like my way too educated parents and my like liberal arts education something in your book which just like the kind of so the, so the but the main theoretical lens through which you see reality television in your book is through postmodernism right you really ascribe postmodernism to reality television as a whole um which like obviously it works you know what i mean it's not i'm not like disagreeing with you in that but i but like ha, again like thinking of like being in a position where I'm thinking about reality television a lot, I think that like something that I grapple with is like why postmodernism? Like with the Hills, great argument for postmodernism. I think that Adam DeVello, who's the creator of it, I think that like he is really about the tension between what's real and what's fake and did it take place, like yada, yada. But I, I guess I wonder like what your argument for postmodernism would be or like what your definition of postmodernism is, especially in relation to reality television as a whole. Because again, in your book, um, I, I think, I mean, I'll have to go through it, but like each chapter is about a different show. And I actually think that like you, you basically like it's it's only, I guess a lot of it's Bravo, but it, it's really like across platforms you know what I mean? So I think there's a lot of room for almost like a subgenre or like a like a difference in like theoretical framework for each show. So I guess I'm kind of wondering like what drew you to postmodernism as like the overarching um, lens through which to to see reality television as like this complete whole. Yeah, I mean that's another really great question, and it's a, it's a tough one too. Um, off, you know, largely owing to how kind of frustrating and ambiguous that term of postmodernism is to begin with. Um, right. I do confess to using it very much as a catch-all term 
in, um, in the book. And I think maybe most generally, I was mostly talking about the, the, the group of theories uh, that really focus on kind of the, the constructedness of social reality and the primacy of things like um, signifiers or symbols and the importance of fiction mm-hmm. and narrative. And of course, the, the way that power runs through all of that in forming all of these things that we take for granted. So what I found formally interesting about reality television with respect to the era that we live in now is that like reality television is all about putting together using all of these um, tricks with film and casting and and uh, what's referred to as producing in the biz, which is kind of managing the, the talent and cast. Um, mm-hmm. All of that is, uh, all this effort is put toward creating something that does feel like a coherent reality that we can kind of live in and follow stories uh, through and get to know characters through. And that's kind of like a little microcosm of the process uh, uh, that we have to follow to form social reality itself as kind of like either like a, um, as a democracy or as a culture or, or whatever. There's all of these fictions that we have to uh, introduce into so-called material reality in order to live alongside one each other and to like uh, live alongside each other and um, go on living uh, in a way. Um, but my, my particular um, favorite or my, my go-to for um, defining and starting with where postmodernism comes from is, uh, is the Frederick Jameson stuff, um, is his, his essay on uh, postmodernism talking about it is the cultural arm of what's referred to imprecisely as late capitalism. Um, but I found, and from a general leftist perspective and kind of from a Marxist perspective, um, I love his work because he, I think he just really tries to zoom back and like get out of like the little kind of like Marxist like quibbles and stuff like that and try to really see the big picture. And I love his description of kind of what has happened to capitalism um, since kind of the fifties and sixties, as we got into like the eighties and, um, and nineties. And then, and you know, now, now more than ever that it's not about the, concrete, tangible commodity anymore. It's about um, products of cognitive labor are kind of some of the most, you know, important or some of the, uh, the, the, the driving force behind today's economy. And that, that applies to the world of finance. It applies to the world of marketing. Um, those things kind of predominate over physical commodities. Um, and those things are all about aesthetics and fictions and, and uh, stuff like that. There's no... Um, right. Uh, there's no, con- there's not the sort of concreteness that an orthodox Marxist would kind of insist upon. So um, that that stuff all kind of uh, interested me generally. And then also the the Baudrillard stuff, which is, um, and uh, you know, his his work is generally kind of put under the umbrella uh, of postmodernism and some of the kind of one of the major uh, through lines of it. Uh, and I thought that his concept of simulation was really just very, very close to what uh, I was trying to say about um, reality TV not being nor, you know, not real nor fake, but this third thing um, of, uh, of a simulation. Um, 
and so I, that's why, and it just studying a lot of the stuff and also like um, Lacan with like the big other and things like that. A lot of this stuff, I was just already kind of interested in and, and investigating. And when I was reading it, it was just like screaming reality TV to me is like, this is what is so fascinating about it. This is why it's like the perfect narrative art form for today is because these things are kind of swirling around us in the economic sphere or, um, or politically with, you know, when we had a reality television uh, president, um, it was so, it was just so vivid <laughs> to me at, at, at the time. Um, yeah. And like, I mean, people were describing uh, Donald Trump exactly that way as he's the first right. postmodern president um, because it's like, and I, I do, I do kind of agree with, um, Jody Dean has said this and Mark Fisher says it at one point is that like the right wingers were really the original postmodernists in the political sphere. And they, um, they really got their agenda by following that stuff to its logical conclusion. Um, and so it, it does have this enormous like uh, power to it. You know, it comes with a whole lot of danger as well. Um, but I guess that's kind of why I, um, used that term and used it somewhat liberally is um, even though it's tough to describe, you know, exactly what that, that word means. I think um, whatever it does mean, it says something a whole, whole lot, you know, something very interesting about reality TV. Yeah. Right. And I think that part of the reason I asked you, like, what's your definition of postmodernism is because like, I mean, postmodernism itself is very postmodernist <laughs> because everyone has a different, or not everyone has a different understanding of it, but it's something that like relegates itself to, to a variety of interpretation, um, kind of always according, you know, in, it's like, it's like self-referential yeah. in a way, or it's like, or it, it's like, it's very, it, it's almost like a, uh, like, it's very like sub, right? Because it's always relating itself to something else. Like it's relating itself to like this height of artistic form modernism, and then it's telling itself that it comes afterwards. You know what I mean? Like, so it's, I mean, I don't know, postmodernism, it's a very, and it's hard, I think, when you didn't, like, I, neither Gemma and I, we, we haven't been to any type of higher education than, like, our fancy liberal arts colleges. But I, so, so I think that sometimes it can be a little bit, like, intimidating almost to, to think about these very ambiguous terms, but, but to understand that they kind of exist because of their ambiguity or in their ambiguity. Um, if, I don't know. It's just like, it's, it's very, it, it's been very like telling. And I think that you're right that I think that like, um, I think that reality television is deeply political because it's deeply aesthetic. You know what I mean? It relies mm -hmm. on its aesthetic, which is again, like, you know, like when, when you have an aesthetics that almost like portends itself or portrays itself within its own world, it's easy to forget that what it's creating is itself or what itself is, is a creation, which I think also gives mm -hmm. itself to this like weird argument of like, is it like better to actively watch it or passively watch it? Or like, how do you watch it? Do you understand it as something that's created or do you understand it as something that's like not created? Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that like, just because like, again, like I'm, not as educated as a lot of other people. And like, I really love that about myself because it lets me have these like crazy ideas about like 
certain theories that I feel like if I went to school, they'd be like, no, you're wrong. But I've been really on this thing, right? Like I've been really on this thing that reality television or like a lot of the Real Housewives or Bravo shows, they're actually, they're not postmodernist. They're actually modernist shows. Like I really understand them in terms of like Edith Warden or in terms of Henry James, or in terms of like the internal need to express yourself of like Proust or, or even yes. the romantics, yeah. you know what I mean? And I think that that to me has been like a really fascinating way to argue with the idea that like, oh, like because it's happening in the 21st century, like because it's playing with ideas of what's true and what's false, like it must be postmodern, you know? And again, I'm not like disregarding your book at all like I actually think that you make a really incredible argument that like reality television is postmodern but it's also I think that just talking with you now and I'm I'm rambling but I kind of love that you didn't study like media theory in grad school right right like yeah. you, you you went to law school and it seems yeah. like you you have an analytical mind like you're obviously very smart but you're like but you're self-taught in the high theory in the media theory yeah yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I didn't study this stuff in, in grad school. I'm, I'm pretty solidly self-taught in it. So I'm, I'm much like you. I mean, I um, make of it what I'm able to. And, um, right. uh, and, I, and something I wanted to do in the book was like, try to make it a little more understandable because like anytime, if you, if you try to read mm -hmm. academic theory about reality TV, I mean, it's like, it's so um, insular and inaccessible. And well, it's kind of bad. Yeah. Like honestly, it's bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to write something that was just like more a little bit more fun and to take it seriously, but also to kind of step through some of the concepts and and really kind of draw out how they how they relate to the form. Um, but to your point about modernism, I actually totally agree. And I think that they it it can be both in a lot of ways. I think kind of like um yeah. maybe the the formal methods and and stuff like that and some of its kind of relation to our questions about um social reality can be very postmodern but some of the kind of content um within the show or kind of on the on the face of it uh is is very modernist and uh Proust is something I I have thought about especially with the real housewives I have an unpublished essay that maybe I'll get up somewhere but it had something to do with um it was another like riff on like Frederick Jameson. Um, he was talking about like uh, gossiping and um, the role of gossip mm -hmm. in Proust and kind of trying to um, uh, provide a different reading than is usually given to it, which is like, oh, these are just, you know, uh, bourgeois rich people, um, how awful all they do is gossip, all of that, um, stuff like that. And he was saying, no, this is actually a peek at um, like, what utopia would be like. I mean, this is what everybody would be doing um, if we really lived in um, a perfect uh, society. Um, there would still be gossip, <laughs> basically. Um, and just the, mm -hmm. the way, he, um, the way he, he related that to Proust and to what I think of as some of the epic kind of uh, like soap opera type drama that I love and kind of thrive off of as a fan of stuff like Real Housewives. I think you're totally right that it is very... Um, very high literary and, and modernist in its field too. So I think, it, I think it can be both. And I mean, I think that makes it even, even more interesting probably. No, for sure. No, mm -hmm. I, to I totally, I totally agree. And I think that like, it's, it's this incredible um, media form because it mediates between so many different things, which out without like 
having having this like intellectual need to make itself anything more than than gossip you know because you can also read it in a very base way of being like this is just an extension of our human utopic need of gossip like this is actually all these shows are what happens in a perfect world right yeah Yeah, absolutely I feel like reality TV is having like a new kind of moment. Like I feel like it's really popular right now, like with like Love Island. And I mean, it's, it's always been there, but I, I, I feel as though there's like a bit of like a moment again, like I, it, something's happening. I mean, Peacock is like continuing the Real Housewives franchise in all these like new ways. You know, it's like, we're still really on the train and, and it's changing. And, and Phoebe and I have been very interested in the future of reality TV. And we talked a lot about that a lot through the lens of like the end of the Kardashians. Like, is it postmodern? Is it like, what kind of hyper real is it in these like formations of reality, like of like the Netflix reality universe, which is, which is basically referencing the Netflix reality universe is made up of all these shows that reference past shows. They're all a little big brother, a little America's not a model. Sometimes they're straight remakes of Bravo shows. There's like bling empire. There's all these it's a generic, it's like these cheap generic knockoffs. And I feel like that's really emerging as like a COVID pastime. You know, I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, I don't know if that's really concise, but you know, I'm just kind of curious about how that, how that works, you know, in terms of this lens that we're Yeah, that's, <clears throat> it's an interesting question also in, in relation to um, kind of uh, what Phoebe was saying about these two different readings we can have on reality TV. Um, like, I don't know that it's necessarily good for the form or what I enjoy about the form to lean into some of the stagedness in this like very obvious way. Um, like in recent years, I forget when it started happening, um, but on, on Bravo, I mean, even, uh, or on The Bachelor, this really started happening a lot was they started like showing producers more often and they started like showing a little bit more of the behind the scenes and saying, this is also part of the story. And then, so, okay, then it gets really like experimental theater and that could be a little bit interesting, but only if it relates to the surface level dramatic arc, the characters that I'm watching. Um, If it becomes about all of that stuff, then it becomes less interesting um, for me. And I actually like kind of a more kind of tightly edited, um, show like some of the classic Real Housewives seasons or the Hills or, or, or stuff like that. Um, I have also, I have also noticed that there has been this, um, this new, new moment of reality TV, probably owing a lot to, um, all of these Netflix shows and just how, um, how accessible it has become and, um, I think you, uh, you call them kind of like, um, cheap knockoffs or something like that, but they're a little bit kind of very simplistic shows. Um, like a lot of, I think there are a lot of people starting with, um, selling sunset or love is blind or something like that, that there's people have been maybe curious about it, but it's like, you know, 13 seasons of, uh, real housewives of orange County. It's kind of like, maybe that ship has sailed. Maybe I'll never <laughs> be able to catch up on all that. Um, whereas they could start with some of this stuff. Um, I think for, for that reason, I haven't been nuts about a lot of this new wave of reality TV. The, the big exception being, I think, Selling Sunset. I really um, love it. I really kind of. Oh, yeah. Well, arguably Adam the best, the best expression Adam of Devello the hyper knows how to do it. And it's the sorry to interrupt you, but like it's the same, especially rewatching The Hills. It's the, literally the same font. 
and yeah. the same like opening and the same closing. Like he, it's, it's, it's extremely formulaic because he's really, he's playing with something deeply postmodern. Absolutely. He's really, he's, yeah. Yeah. I, and I actually, I never made, I never made that connection until you mentioned it, um, that he was the producer of both, but they really are so similar. I mean, Selling Sunset is, um, it's a wildly cinematic and beautiful show to watch. I mean, you just kind of Gorgeous. can't take your eyes off of it. And it's just all of this, like uh, all of this stuff that really lends itself toward that is like the, the incredible, you know, houses they're selling, all of their like nuts, like outfits and like fashion and stuff like that. Um, I mean, it's hugely- Share bag. <laughs> yeah. All right, so Tom, I have three more questions. Okay. They're right. short, but they're short ones. All right, let's do it. Okay, one, do you see your mother in any of the New Jersey housewives? Oh, that's- Two, <laughs> two, <laughs> what is Robinson Crusoe? Like, where does it fit in terms of genre? And then uh, three, what's your next thing? Where where do you go from here? Are you a lawyer? Are you a... And what are you watching? Okay. okay. <laughs> I would say in short, yes. Uh, because uh, <laughs> my mother um, definitely is uh, a character. She was a, a, a single mother uh, when I was growing up. Um, she is a wonderful, hilarious person, but is not afraid to maybe make a little bit of a scene at the dinner table. Um, so... <laughs> You know, believe it or not, and I mean, this just shows how funny the unconscious is and all of that. I never made that connection <laughs> at all. I never thought, I never thought to uh, draw that connection um, uh, until now. So, um, so yes, but in a, in a good in a good way, in a very good way. Uh, yeah, and the housewives, I think, in general, are are telling us something about our mothers. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> so then with with Robinson Crusoe, I'm not, you know, a huge expert on the history of the novel and all of that. And I'm not sure exactly if this is what your question was getting at. Um, do you mean the book itself or its role in the argument that I was trying to make when I when I mentioned well, it's, it? I, I'm asking the question because you in your chapter on Survivor or when you're talking about Survivor, you talk about Survivor as almost an extension of what Robinson Crusoe was, right? Yeah. But Robinson Crusoe mm -hmm. is, and again, like one of the joys of not having gone to grad school is I, I literally do not know where Robinson Crusoe fits in in like a scholarly argument. Because like, yes, okay. it's Enlightenment era, but also mm -hmm. it's, it's not an Enlightenment novel. It's a political novel. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's also a book that's taught not in English classes, but like in political, like in, in, in poli sci classes, you know what I mean? So I'm just like, I'm, I'm wondering like how, how you as someone who's also kind of outside of the academy, but also someone who wrote this like deep theory book, how you, how you see Robinson Crusoe fitting into an argument about another kind of like genreless genre. Of reality television. Yeah. So I won't have too much to say on this because, um, first of all, haven't read the book and don't really know that much about it. And second of all, the revealed. analogy, <laughs> the um, the comparison, I'm borrowing from uh, the literary critic David Shields, who has that book, Reality Hunger, that I tried to use in exploring 
the question of that chapter, which is like, this is you know what's happening on uh, TV, but also what are the parallel trends that have occurred in literature recently? And so stuff like auto fiction, um, mm. that stuff is kind of trendier or even just the role of the author's identity yeah. in creating a novel, um, a fiction novel is like, there's supposed to be a really close connection to reality these days. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, put it that way. And so David Shields was pointing out um, that, uh, you know, some people or my understanding is that a lot of historians of the novel will say that that is either the first or the first major um, English language novel. So you could kind of associate it with the birth of the novel as we know it. And um, it was itself based on a true story, uh, inspired by true events or whatever. And then um, all these, you know, many, many years later, many eras in, in media and culture later, there's a Swedish reality show called um, Expo Exposition Crusoe, I think, which is this proto-survivor mm -hmm. thing. And then Survivor is just the American version that was kind of based on that Swedish show. So I just thought it was so interesting that like the novel itself, the birth of it was related to kind of this direct representation of reality. And then mm -hmm. that same novel inspired the dawn of really the reality TV show um, era itself with Survivor in like 2000 or, or no, 99. No, I love that. Oh, sorry, um, keep going, keep going. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just thought it was like a fascinating, almost kind of historical dialectic between this thing of reality and fiction kind of playing off of each other and generating new forms of storytelling. So ah. that was um, that was all I, I, I can bring in for that novel. I'm not uh, I'm actually not aware. Plenty that, no, I, I love that. That's kind of my favorite part about thinking about reality TV is like making those like because there's always like some like weird rock you overturn and you're like, oh my God, that's what that is. Like yeah. So to wrap up, so are you a lawyer? Do you practice a rude question? Is that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't practice law anymore. Um, I had kind of an interesting um, separation from that field. Um, so uh, not anymore, thankfully. What are you watching? Oh, so um, so I watched uh, I watched Salt Lake City, uh, of course. It was an excellent season. Really, really happy yes. with it. I'm watching New Jersey. Um, I'm not super excited about New Jersey, but I just love that cast. I will always watch that show. I'm like a, I'm like obsessed with Dolores and her family, like Frank and Frankie, and uh, Summer House. I love Summer House. I mean, I think. I can't get into it, that. but I'll force myself to, and I'll be obsessed with that. Everyone's watching it. There are, there are a lot of different kind of also eras of it. They've had mm. like a certain core cast, but they've also had people coming but in and Kyle out. Kyle through the, through the, through the remains. Seasons. Kyle's yeah. like the one yeah, person yeah. that's still there. Yeah, a couple of them. Kyle, Lindsay. Um, Lindsay's great, though. She's she's really, I think, the, the kind of the spirit oh, of the really? show. Because she's... Yeah, I, I realized that relatively recently, like maybe last season or something, because she's just such a problematic person and just always, you know, <laughs> creates creates conflict, but in a very intense way. She's a very intense person. So anyway, um, uh, love that show. Um, oh, and I've actually been doing historical studies. I've had to go back and brush up on a lot of Atlanta. 
Um, I was doing that. Yeah. So I watched season nine, um, which I thought was incredible. I loved. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. Um, Blew my mind. And then we went all the way back and watched my, my roommate and I, we went back and watched uh, season five and we just finished it. Um, It's and it's a good place to like jump in because it's Kim's last season. She leaves early. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then it storms out. Yep. And it's also um, Portia and Kenya's yeah. first season. And they really um, yeah. take the show by storm. I mean, especially. I love Portia. A huge Portia I'm a fan. huge Portia fan as well. Um, she's she's kind of my favorite. Kenya is, um, I'm incredibly. The best villain. Yeah, I'm incredibly ambivalent about her because she is yeah. an incredible villain, but I cannot get over how mean she is sometimes. The things that she says oh, what do you think about Heidi uh, chewing on liver? Oh, it's like my favorite thing. <laughs> For the paps. <laughs> yeah, it's my favorite thing ever. Um, I love that she's, because I'm a really big Heidi fan from watching that show. Like I'm totally on her side in terms of the conflict between her and Lauren. So I really think that um, things have worked out so nicely for Heidi in the long run. And I'm very happy for her. And to the extent that she could stay relevant, I'm all for it. Um, I also be- became a big fan relatively recently of her her album from like 2008. Um, Never oh, it's great. It's awesome. <laughs> I love it. Um, so big fan of hers. I, you know, <laughs> I want nothing, nothing but the best for her. And I hope she stays relevant. If, if she needs to eat raw meat on Instagram to do that, then that's what you got to do. I hope she eats so much more. <laughs> yeah, I, I will be watching for sure. Well, Tom, thank you so much for coming on. This was a really great discussion. One of our, one of my favorites. Truly, truly. So far, I think. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate you guys checking out the book and inviting me on. Um, this has been a blast. I, I've really enjoyed talking with you guys and I appreciate all the, all the great questions and, uh, and everything we talked about. Yes, thank you for your, your answers. And, and for those listening, um, definitely get this book. You'll, if you like this stuff, you'll like it a lot. Well, thank you, Tom. All right, awesome. Bye. Thanks so much, guys. Money can't buy your class. Money can't buy your class. Elegance is learned, my friends. Elegance is learned, oh yeah. Money can't buy your class Money can't buy your class Elegance is learned, my friends Elegance is learned How many men there are that forget to hold the door When I give them so much more than they can imagine Money rich and manners poor Never got the boys too far Money talks but I just walk When I can't stand it And the primary mistake Texting on a date If you make a lady wait She'll take a pass The lesson all should learn Even if there's cash to burn Respect yourself cause no one else Can change your path Money can't buy your class
set to allow the men you've met to exemplify their very best behavior. When entering a room, greet everyone and soon you'll be invited and entitled to the grandeur. Your company should feel when a conversation's real, even if the topic feels like science class. You can tell where someone's been without even asking him. He's either rude or has some style and panache. Money can't buy your class. Money can't buy your class. Elegance is learned, my friends. Elegance is learned, oh yeah. Life is all about elegance and flair and savoir-faire. You don't have to be rich or famous to be unforgettable. <laughs> it's not about where you're from. It's about what you've learned. Money can't buy your class. Money can't buy your class. Elegance is learned. My friends, elegance is learned. Money can't buy your class. 